Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Tuesday, July 24th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The polls are in, and they're widely being misinterpreted. Not totally a bad week for Donald Trump because polls suggest he is more popular than ever. Actually, they don't, as your co-host will soon make clear. Uh, A new Wall Street Journal NBC poll shows 88% of Republican voters like what Mr. Trump is doing. That's one of the highest job approval ratings, incidentally, since George W. Bush. Since George W. Bush, who was, of course, the last Republican president, kind of stands to reason that Trump will be the most popular among Republicans since then. But what these polls are saying isn't that he's popular, although we got to concede that there have been points in his presidency that he's been less popular than he is now. He's still underwater, as they say, in terms of popularity. What the polls really show is that he's remarkably popular among Republicans, as the Meet the Press podcast, The Lid, explains. So what's going on here? See? Yes, he's got a stronger hold on his base than ever. But his numbers with independents are getting worse, and they're getting worse fast. Just 36% of independents approve of the job Trump is doing, which is down a whopping seven points since last month. Aha. That is true, but Kerry Dan there needs to pull it all together. It's not that we have cross-currents. It's not that he's popular among some, he's less popular than others, up, down. No. What he's doing is he's turning his people into other people. He's turning people who were Republicans, who used to be fine with identifying as Republicans, into non-Republicans. And it's showing up in his unpopularity with independents. When a pollster polls African-Americans or college graduates or union members or Wisconsin residents, those are all statuses that the people being polled uh, don't really have to rely on their self-perception to define themselves as. And if a non-college graduate says, you know, I really don't like Trump, that person, just by saying that, doesn't become a college graduate, though I do believe such sentiments should earn credit. But when a Republican really, really disagrees with a Republican president, that person just might stop becoming a Republican or identifying as a Republican. This is also what drives me so insane with the constantly cited sentiment that Trump is doing well with his base. Of course he is, because tautology, your base is your most ardent group of supporters. So what you're saying is he has a lot of support among his supporters. Tautology. What's really happening is that Trump actually is thrilling Republicans. It is true. Republicans love the guy. I think that every Republican who doesn't love the guy currently has a contract with the Atlantic or has announced he's retiring from the Senate. But the reason the numbers are so strong is that he's forcing a sort of purge in the Republican Party. It's not massive, but numerous pollsters have revealed that the party is shrinking a bit under Trump. So of course independents like him a little more because, well, 
just people who are independent actually don't like him. They're more like America as a whole. But it's also because an appreciable number of those independents are independents precisely because they're Republicans who no longer like Trump. Anyway, Trump really does have an approval number above 40, which is freaking appalling. But his 88% approval rating among Republicans needs to be understood. On the show today, I spiel about, well, it's more Trump. Sorry about that. But we in the media need to do this. We need to document his lies. And what if documentation, good and thorough though it is, doesn't change minds? Should we keep documenting? I will answer that. All right, I'll tip my hand. The answer is yeah. But first, the founder of Core TV and Brill's content, Brill himself, Stephen Brill, has been covering policy for decades. He's seen things that'd make a billy goat puke. Sorry, that's Rambo. Steve Brill is more like an air traffic controller who's recognizing a tailspin. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Stephen Brill's latest book is Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. Now, Tailspin is clearly an aerial metaphor, but the central idea centers around a terrestrial phrase, and it is the road to hell, because Brill sets his sight on good intentions, particularly one good intention which has hurt American society over and over again, the idea of the meritocracy. Well, let's talk to uh, one of the smartest people around, perhaps a beneficiary of the meritocracy itself. Hello, Mr. Brill. How are you? Good. I'm certainly a beneficiary, and I'm not sure it's consistently the road to hell, but let's just say there have been a lot of potholes on that road. Okay, let's talk about a couple of them. What has gone wrong? Meritocracy, the idea that those who are the most skilled can accrue the most benefits from those skills. Well, what the book attempts to do is take uh, five or six different things that were going on at the same time from the late 1960s uh, through today, and they sort of swirled uh, together to make uh, kind of a perfect storm. The problem was it didn't look like a storm at the time. It, it, all of it looked pretty good. We were creating in this country a different kind of economy, a knowledge economy. And what the knowledge economy really was concentrated on were the financial and legal sectors. The sum total of that is that those law firms became much more able. 
uh, to protect the wealthy corporate clients that they had. On the banking side, uh, the knowledge workers who were part of the new meritocracy and got into all these institutions uh, created all kinds of trailblazing uh, products in the financial industry and resulted in all the things that hollowed out our economy and in particular hollowed out our economy for uh, the vast middle class, the result of which is that middle class incomes in this country have been stagnant or in fact uh, fallen behind since the 1970s at the same time that the prosperity enjoyed by the top 1% um, has skyrocketed so that the gap between the middle class and the very wealthy in this country, which which narrowed from 1928 through 1972, has exploded again to where it's back where it was in 1928. In fact, it's worse. Right. So why is the problem on the input part of that equation that Yale educated people like you and other schools educated great, smart people who went on to do smart things? Why isn't the problem more on the fact that our institutions were incapable of erecting guardrails? Well, well, in fact, that's the whole point of my book is that um, at the same time that we were allowing all these overachievers in the meritocracy to overachieve, they were so smart uh, that they were able, uh, you know, by paying lobbyists, you know, the, you know, a whole platoon of knowledge workers went to Washington so that between 1973 and 1983, the number of lawyers in Washington literally tripled. So they were able to pay lobbyists and tax lawyers and everybody else to take down the guardrails. Okay, let's go back to the idea that, so you talked about how the meritocracy created innovation, in quotes, in banking and finance, and those have come back to bite us to a large extent. And so I said, but isn't it really the fault of the institutions for not providing guardrails? And you again cited the uh, meritocracy for supplying the lobbyists and the lawyers. However, the lobby- lobbyists have always had a huge impact on government. Um, in 1903, the Copper Kings bought the Montana legislature. And in the past, it was just that those lobbyists came from the same sets of families. Now maybe you could say, okay, maybe some of those lobbyists were born in Jackson Heights, Queens. There's really a change in the nature of and power of lobbyists uh, during the time of the rise of the meritocracy? Yeah, I think that, you know, that comparison, you know, with uh, the Montana legislature is is frankly ridiculous. There, there, there really can't be much of a debate about whether money dominates politics and public policy in this country today more than it did in 1903. It's a combination not just of lobbyists, but of campaign money. And that's, you know, the case uh, where, as I explain in the book, over a 50-year period, the First Amendment uh, was gradually hijacked. Uh, beginning in 1976, ironically, with a lawsuit brought by Ralph Nader, in which he argued uh, the drugstores that wanted to advertise their discounts on prescription drugs in, in uh, Virginia had a First Amendment right to speak. That case in 1976 
uh, was followed by a bunch of cases that culminated um, in Citizens United in 2010. Did Ralph Nader do anything wrong, do you think, at that time? No, although Ralph Nader is quoted in my book as saying that that case was the biggest boomerang of anything he's ever done. Right, right. And your book talks a lot about boomerangs and and good intentions and the road to hell. But my theory in reading your book and taking this all in is that plutocrats are going to plutocrat. I think that so much of what you describe is stuff that Bobby Kennedy was talking about, is stuff that Bernie Sanders is talking about, is powerful people using their power as powerful people always have. Well, I don't think that's inconsistent because what I'm saying is that if you put people in a law firm and you pay them to serve their clients, and you especially incent them and pay them and celebrate them for being uh, creative, they will look at that uh, decision about discounting drugs and they'll say, well, gee, if the court says you shouldn't discriminate against corporations uh, who want to advertise uh, discount prices for drugs, what's wrong with a corporation, a bank in Boston, that wants to advertise um, against a tax increase? And then it just kept going. So the lawyers just kept you know, getting more creative, just the way the bankers who, when they started with, uh, with uh, derivatives, uh, mortgage-backed securities, the goal was let's put more people into homes by giving more people the opportunity to own their home by giving, them, uh, by giving more of them the opportunity to get a mortgage. So someone said, well, I know a way to give more people the opportunity to get a mortgage. We'll, uh, we'll go to banks. And we'll tell them, you know, they can sell us a thousand mortgages in one package. We'll buy those mortgages and all the cash flow that comes from those mortgages. And we'll sell that off to investors in Europe or, you know, investors at other investment banks in the United States. And with the money that that bank, that local bank has, because we've just paid them for the thousand mortgages they have, they can offer more mortgages. And then came another invention uh, the credit default swap, which basically meant you could buy insurance if you were the entity that ended up having bought all those mortgages uh, because you had no idea whether those mortgages were any good. You could buy insurance uh, in case the mortgages went bad and the insurance company, beginning with AIG, remember AIG, who uh, was selling this insurance basically took the view, well, no package of a 1,000 or 10,000 mortgages is going to go bad. So, yeah, we'll sell the insurance and we'll sell it real cheap because it's total profit to us. They're, you know, we're not going to have to pay out anything. So that's how the world collapsed. So I'm with you on all the specifics. But again, to the root cause, are you saying that dumber or less qualified lawyers in those positions would have made society better off? I mean, maybe it would have. Banking was a really boring job that ambitious people never went into when the only way to do it was to have your daddy hired you. That's, an, that's a really interesting question. I, I think what I'm saying is that the kind of creativity and, uh, and drive that that the meritocrats had uh, made them capable of inventing all kinds of new forms of progress. Uh, an arbitration clause that protects, you know, banks from cheating people out of, you know, an extra $5 a month of, you know, service charges, or whether it's a credit default swap. That kind of creativity um, ended up being way too much of a good thing when combined with a um, 
a set of, of institutions and structures where, as you put it and as I put it in the book, the guardrails had been removed by people who were also in the meritocracy who were coming up with creative new ways to remove the guardrails. Now, when I look at other advanced nations like New Zealand and Denmark and Canada, I don't see them not embracing the idea of meritocracy. They have uh, smart kids from sometimes it's even easier for a person of lower class uh, such that it exists in Denmark to go to a top school and they are rewarded with top jobs. Uh, They also have a different tax system. So why is the meritocracy there not as toxic as it is here? Because of something you said before. There are guardrails. Um, let's take healthcare. Okay, I can um, be a, a really smart, you know, drug company executive, and every place except the United States where I sell my prescription drugs, which have a patent, my life-saving prescription drug. The good news is somebody's invented it, and it's healing people and it's saving lives. Every other country where I want to sell that uh, drug. Uh, because it has a patent, which means it's a monopoly, and because it's crucial to somebody's life, there are guardrails. In this case, the guardrail is a control on how much you can charge for it. Not a control that doesn't mean the drug companies aren't making big profits because they make big profits all across Europe and Asia and in New Zealand and Australia. They make a lot of money. They just make half the high profits that they make in the United States. So that's another example of a guardrail. Um, you know, antitrust laws are enforced you know, very differently in Europe, as you can see from you know, everything you're reading about the European Union, um, than they are in the United States. Um, it would be you know, unthinkable to have the kinds of combinations of companies that you're now having in the United States. But it seems to me that those places still are the most powerful people, are top students who went to top schools. It's something besides the institution and this trend of the meritocracy that is causing this, something particularly American. You know, you know Tailspin is about you know five different things of which the meritocracy is only one. In none of those countries you know, can the meritocrats, the winners, deploy money to control the political system the way they can in the United States. It's not even close. Tailspin is the name of the book, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. Stephen Brill is the author. Thanks very much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Donald Trump is considering revoking the security clearances of former Intel officials who have criticized him. Maybe you heard. The president is exploring the mechanisms to remove security clearance because they've politicized and in some cases monetized their public service and security clearances. But the thing is that two of the people who Trump targeted didn't actually have security clearances. They gave it up when they left office. And this went unreported for hours and hours and hours after a lot of angst was spilled. Does one spill angst? Garments were rendered, you know, whatever one does with angst over the entire process of punishing one's political enemies by taking away their security clearances. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who you heard answering the question, and the reporter asked the question, seemed not to know this fact that Comey and McCabe don't have security clearances. So here's what happens. Trump threatens an action. The idea is so offensive or so chilling or so shocking in principle that a whole news cycle 
I guess, whatever that term is. I mean, what's a news cycle anymore? But anyway, hundreds of stories get written about that chilling, frightening, horrible thing, even though it's in large part imaginary. Trump imagines he could do this thing, and he gets treated as if the imaginary is real. This is Nero's horse being made into a senator territory, people. Usually, we in media jump on the bullshit claims, and when we're brave enough to correct them, we do. But there is a huge body of Trump claims that we don't even really think to fact check, either because so much else is going on, or why would you lie about that, or journalists might not have the information at their fingertips fingertips about something that's unknown or arcane, like who currently has a security clearance. And so what Trump does is he tries to create his own reality, and he often succeeds. Here's another example. Right after the Kim Jong-un summit, Trump made a lot of outrageous, baseless claims. And I do have to say, the gatekeepers kept the gate on the big ones. Just because Trump says we have peace in our time doesn't mean we have peace in our time, and we don't need Clement Attlee's ghost to tell us so. Love a nice Clement Attlee reference. So we were good on calling out the claim that North Korea had denuclearized. We're pretty good on that. But then there was this little tossed off boast. We got back our great fallen heroes, the remains. In fact, today already 200 have been sent back. Well, no, we didn't. We didn't. And we don't now. That was a lie. And Reuters today checked in, and guess what? No remains have been secured. The North Koreans seem to be holding out for food, fuel, and cash in order to deliver the remains. And by the way, and I host a podcast, I'm not on TV, so I don't have to be likable. If I needed to be likable, I wouldn't say this, but I'm going to say this. If I were president, I would forget the remains. I would not negotiate for the remains. I would tell the families. Trump says parents come to him. Come on, they'd have to be 100 years old. But I talked to spouses or sons and daughters of men who were killed in action in Korea, and I would say, I'm very sorry, so sorry. We honor your sacrifice, but I am not going to use your family members' remains as leverage against a hostile power. The benefit would be that you get bone fragments and dust, but the cost would be great. So I am so sorry for your loss all those years ago, but know that your husband or brother or father sacrificed for his country, and now, posthumously, we're asking him to sacrifice again. And we acknowledge that, and we thank you, and I thank you personally. I hope you understand and know that I honor your sacrifice. Anyway, I think that talk is a lot better than being blackmailed for the remains, especially when the remains have not been forthcoming yet. Anyway, there was one other claim that the president made that went largely, if not unchecked, then allowed to fester. Actually, there have been many others. I'm just going to talk about one other. It was hard to prove that Trump's claims about saving money on Air Force One were lies. But here's another corollary that possibly complicates that theory, which is, that even if bullshitting wouldn't help Trump, he's probably still bullshitting. Like talking about how Reagan didn't win Wisconsin over and over again. Bullshit. Why? He's a bullshitter. I speak English. Pierre speaks French. Trump talks bullshit. Now let's review his Air Force One claims, this from CBS. But I was able to save $1.5 billion and order a new one for the country. Last week, CNN ends their report by saying Trump's dealings with Boeing over new Air Force One airplanes has been a public affair. 
in the weeks after Trump's election, he tweeted about the cost of the new 747 airplanes, said they were out of control, and he threatened to cancel the development after a deal was finally struck in February. The White House touted the negotiation as saving the American taxpayer around $1.4 billion from the original estimate, quote, I was able to save $1.5 billion and order a new one for the country, Trump said in the interview. And then full stop. That's the end of the CNN article. How about answering the question in the air? Well, did he? Did he really save it or did he just claim it? Answer, he did not. He did not save it. Kevin Drum of Mother Jones looked into it. Says, if you want the real Air Force One story, here it is. It went through the standard procurement process, briefly got a little pricey in 2016, stayed pricey because Trump's Defense Department turned down every proposed cutback, and finally came in under $4 billion thanks to Boeing locating some 747s in storage and then scraping a few dollars here and there from the original spec. Donald Trump played no part in this. Drum then quotes Samantha Masanaga of the Los Angeles Times, who reported out the story, talked to a procurement expert, and looked at the Defense Department budget estimates to confirm Trump did not bring down these costs. And let me just say that the point and purpose of showing that the president is lying doesn't have to be to move the needle because it's not moving the needle, is it? And it's not to provide fodder for Trump supporters, the base, tautology. And the reason that we need to do these things, even if it seems like no one's mind is being changed, the reason that what Samantha Masanaga of the Times and Kevin Drum and all the people who are really reporting these stories, the reason they need to keep reporting them is that it's their job. And as a member of the media, I can say it is our job to hold the leader accountable, even if the leader's supporters do not want to hear it, and even if the leader's opponents already know it. The reason it is our job isn't the hope that any one story or even the accumulation of stories will cause a dip in the president's approval rating. It's not the idea that it will restrain the president in any way. That seems not to be happening. I mean... I do not think that anyone heard any of these Air Force One details or the remains of the Korean soldiers details. Anyone in my audience said, well, that is it. I have now soured on the man. And also, I probably am guessing you said to yourself, well, that's not a shock. That doesn't seem out of character. But what that information all represents is salient facts that inform your opinion. And yes, it may be a firmly held and longly held opinion, but that doesn't mean that knowing them aren't a valid piece of evidence contributing to your opinion. Look, flowers are beautiful. I still go to the botanical garden a couple times a year to take them all in. I don't say, eh, what's the point? I already know the flowers were beautiful and big shock, the flowers are beautiful. And hell, I'm already a member of the Botanical Garden. You're preaching to the converted brother. No. And oh, by the way, maybe there is a son or a daughter of a killed in action soldier in Korea who heard Trump's brag about the remains. And now upon learning that the full story isn't what he said, maybe they will sour on Trump. You know, someone sours on Trump every day or doesn't if you don't report it. So it is our job to point out all the lies, all the boasts, all the bullshit, and to do it all the way about all the things that he bullshits about. Yeah, there are problems with this. 
Doesn't seem to matter. There's literally 50% less of the New York Daily News than there was two days ago. And negative clickbait and echo chamber servicing have become a big part of the media's job. But like one famous newspaper that I subscribe to, but still won't let me read more than 10 articles on Twitter, so I have to click on Safari. All right, you know who I'm talking about, WAPO. But like they say, democracy dies in darkness. And it gets at least wounded if there's only one overhead light, but still a bunch of shadows in the corner. That's it for today's show. Thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. Learn more about the many stupendous benefits of membership. It's a tautological idea that membership has its benefits. These benefits include ad-free versions of the show. Go to slate.com slash gist plus. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader produce the gist. They listen to my analysis and sing out in unison, circular reasoning. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of the gists, wants to turn tautology into a popular musical because he knows that a popular musical will be well attended. The gist. I believe in a system where all the best actors are judged on their graying facial hair, their fatherly air, and their ability to embody Top Gun Commander Viper. Also possibly play the lead on picket fences. Yes, I believe in the Tom Scaredocracy, and I make no apologies. Oomperu depru depru, and thanks for listening.